Okay, so um, in my last episode, I tried to give some background on the Law of One, and um, I read a rather lengthy post from a Reddit user named Green Ray Love regarding the uh, the general process uh, in which uh, the Law of One was composed, um, and also the the tragic suicide of Don Elkins, who is the questioner in the Law of One. Uh, book. Uh, and so today I'm uh, going to get into the raw material and, and just comment on it as I go. But first, I, I want to say that I found uh, additional information in the in the um, epilogue uh, of the uh, Law of One available on lawofone.info, which substantially bears out uh, what um, uh, the Reddit user Greenray Love said in his or her post. And it just goes to illustrate the general spirit of transparency in which uh, LNL Research, which is the, the outfit, um, the sort of new age channeling spirituality outfit headed by Jim McCarty now, I believe, because um, I believe both Don Elkins and Carla Ruckert have passed on. Um, it illustrates the whole spirit of of transparency in which LNL research operates because they, they don't hide anything and they make their available, they make their material available for free, which shows that, you know, I, I think they're sincere. Um, so I'm going to read this epilogue just to show that I'm not hiding anything um, or part of the epilogue. Uh, or I mean, rather to show that um, the, the post from Green Ray Love is substantially accurate. Um, even if not necessarily accurate in every detail. So epilogue to book five, Jim. After we moved back to Louisville, the mental emotional dysfunction which Ross spoke of concerning Don occurred. Don was noted all his life for being very cool and extremely wise, emotionally unmoved by events which caused others to fall apart. His observations and advice always proved to be correct. Now as this dysfunction worsened, Don saw himself intensely affected by even the smallest stimuli. His worrying deepened to depression, and he sought healing counsel from every available source, yet nothing worked, and he resigned himself to a death which he saw quickly approaching. After seven months of this mental, emotional, and physical deterioration, he became unable to sleep or to eat solid foods. By November, he had lost one-third of his body weight and was experiencing intense pain. He refused further hospitalization, which we saw as the last hope for his survival. The thought of having him put into the hospital against his will was abhorrent to us, but we decided to do it and to hope for a miracle, knowing of no other possible way to save Don's life at that point. When the police came to serve the warrant, a five-and-one-half-hour standoff resulted. Don was convinced his death was imminent, and he did not want to die in a hospital in a mental hospital. When tear gas was used to bring Don out of the house, he walked out of the back door and shot himself once through the brain. He died instantly. After his death, Carla saw him three times in waking visions, and he assured us that all was well and that all had occurred appropriately, even if it made no sense to us. So we give praise and thanksgiving for Don's life, for his death, and for our work together. Through this, uh, Though this book is a more personal portion of all that work, uh, we hope that you can see that the principles underlying our experiences are the same ones which underlie yours. Though experiences may vary widely, the purpose is the same, that the many portions of the one may know themselves and the one as one. Or, as Ra put it, quote, we leave you in appreciation of the circumstance of the great illusion in which you now choose to play the pipe and timbrel and move in rhythm. 
We are also players upon a stage. The stage changes. The acts ring down. The light come. The lights come up once again, and throughout the grand illusion and the following, and the following, uh, there is the undergirding majesty of the one infinite Creator. All is well. Nothing is lost. Go forth rejoicing in the love and the light, the peace and the power of the one infinite Creator. I am Ra Adonai. Okay, so. Um, so again, we see here Ra's contention uh, that you know reality is itself is some kind of illusion, um, and um, uh, so I'm I'm about to um, uh, offer some reasons why I don't think um, that view can be plausibly defended. Um, this uh, section is going to be a little bit more on the on the involved side um, for some listeners. And um, if you don't feel like dealing with those philosophical questions, um, I would say just skip past uh, the rest of this episode and go to the next episode. Because in that episode, I'm going to be reading uh, The Law of One and commenting on it. I just wanted to give some background uh, for what I'm going to be saying in my commentary. So yeah, if you if you like philosophy, stick around and you'll see why I, I'm saying that Ra is um, talking out of his interdimensional behind when he says that reality is an illusion. Um, and um, if you don't like philosophy, then go to the next episode, in which case I'll see you there. What does it mean to exist? Can any thoroughly non-perceptual or non-cognitive definition of existence be meaningfully offered. A lot of people imagine that um, early in the 20th century, um, Bertrand Russell and George Edward Moore dealt uh, a fatal blow to idealism. Um, they each wrote uh, a couple of essays, more or less. Um, in Bertrand Russell's case, it was maybe longer than an essay. Um, it was a small book. Um, explaining that idealists, in asserting that to be is to be perceived, had essentially confused um, the act of knowing with the objects of knowledge. And... Um, from this concluded that it doesn't necessarily follow that to be is to be perceived, um, all the while uh, uh, taking for granted, I mean, Russell and Moore took for granted, that um, there was something that it means for a hypothetically mind-independent object to exist in and of itself. They never actually spelled it out. Russell gets close um, in, in his um, book, whose name escapes me now, um, he argues that the non-mental nature, the noumenal or mind-independent nature of reality is uh, spatio-temporal, uh, not realizing, you know, the standard argument is that, you know, colors are subject to uh, variation from person to person, or they're subject, you know, color perception is subject to variation um, if you tamper with the neurological state of the brain. Ditto with sounds, smells. As such, these properties can be regarded as not primary to uh, 
reality. These, these properties can be regarded as not being truly a part of the objects that cause our perceptions. Um, Russell didn't realize that, you know, um, if this is the argument against treating uh, sight, touch, and hearing as uh, primary properties of, shall we say, base reality, um, then uh, this argument works equally well against space and time. As Albert Einstein put it, uh, space and time are modes by which we think, not conditions in which we live. Um, you can certainly induce distortions in a person's uh, perception of space and time, uh, you know, with uh, neurological uh, tinkering. You know, I'm thinking of migraines or perhaps um, electromagnetic um, uh, stimulation technologies. It's, it's very easy to induce abnormalities in one's perceptions of space and time. And, um, but even beyond that, if you're saying that space and time are uh, fundam fundamental properties in terms of which mind-independent reality can be characterized, um, the question naturally arises, when, when no one is perceiving the space-time manifold, or if there is some space-time region that no one is perceiving, um, from from what perspective does it exist? And the answer is, of course, the answer has to be no perspective. But then if one is speaking of an intrinsically non-perspectival space-time manifold, what is one talking about except, you know, an oxymoron? So Russell never actually um, bothers to offer a convincing definition of, you know, what it is that a mind-independent uh, object is and what it means for a mind independent object to exist you have to do this because if you're quote unquote refuting idealism which is essentially the claim that no mind independent objects exist um, then you're necessarily committed to the claim that some mind independent objects exist and then for your claim to even be meaningful you should spell out what exist means when applied to mind independent objects if 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 it doesn't have anything to do with um so-called secondary uh sense perception properties like uh sight touch hearing and if it doesn't have anything to do with spatio-temporal categories like cause cause is definitely one of those or i mean you can speak of cause and perhaps a generalization of spatio-temporal terms like higher dimensional manifolds but that doesn't get you anywhere. You still have to answer the question of what an intrinsically non-perspectival, uh, you know, generalization of the space-time manifold, higher order generalization of that looks like, and you can't. No one ever has. And and so the, the truth is that idealism was never refuted, quote unquote. Um, I think there were certain lazy versions of it. And, and arguably, the whole thing is a little bit lazy insofar as you know, it says everything is mind. Well, if everything is mind, then what is mind opposed to? Um, what does mind even really mean? Um, Christopher Langan's CTMU um, gets closer to a credible answer to that by saying that, you know, basically um, anything that can be understood bears description as language and therefore reality is intrinsically syntactic. That's a better way to describe it than saying that it's, in that it's intrinsically mental. Um, Although, 
I mean, it of the two, an intrinsically syntactic or linguistic reality uh, looks a lot more like idealism um, than it does like physicalism or materialism. Um, and indeed, the self-processing nature of a linguistic um, ultimate reality um, does bear description as mind-like and cognitive. So anyway, um, idealism was never really refuted, in my opinion. It seems to me that people just got sick of debating about it, and um, uh, they just went back to thinking in terms that were more comfortable and familiar. They kind of, it was more like a uh, a change in the collective tastes of philosophy, like a, uh, a fashion change, uh, entry into a new fad um, of, of analysis of how language is ordinarily used and uh, getting away from metaphysics, but without actually dealing any death blow whatsoever to idealist metaphysics. So what I'm going to be arguing as we go forward is that what we mean by exist is um, to have some kind of defined realization in consciousness. Um, outside of the conscious realization of some phenomenon, exist doesn't really have any meaning. Therefore, in order for something to be exist, uh, for something to exist and, and be perceptually relevant, it has to be free of contradiction, because otherwise it can't be realized in consciousness. Now, of course, uh, there have been, um, you know, there there have been people who do, uh, who've doubted the fundamentally um, perceptual and cognitive and conscious nature of reality, and there have pe been people who doubted that uh, uh, reality. Um, has to be logical and intelligible. And I'm thinking uh, perhaps uh, most originally of Parmenides, um, who seemed to think that whatever changes is just fundamentally not real. And he looked at his own experience as being one of constant change and concluded that his own experience is an illusion. Um, of course, if one's own experience, uh, if one's own immediate experience cannot serve as the standard um, for reality, then I don't know what can, and I don't know in what intelligible sense one can conclude that one's own immediate experience uh, is illusion. What is true? You know, first of all, if you're going to say something is false, you have to say what it could mean for it to be true. You cannot even imagine uh, what what you uh, consider to be the truth if you say that your immediate experience is false. Um, you're saying that something intrinsically static and inconceivable is true. But, I mean, this is this is silly. Uh, it, it doesn't do us any good at all to say that consciousness itself is, is, is an illusion, as though one possessed any other standard with which to adjudicate the truth. Now, what, it might be that one has had experiences in consciousness which one finds difficult to express in natural language, but it's a very lazy error of thinking to assume that, therefore, these experiences are intrinsically unrepresentable and therefore not logical. Here's another thing. Um, reality, by definition, it, it has to be intelligible because unintelligible reality is like a contradiction in terms. If you perceive something then already on some level you understand it 
and you have related it to um, the rest of the structure of your perceptions and, you know, cognitive beliefs. And there's a way in which reality, in order to be intelligible at all, has to be intelligible on every level, in every respect. Because any contradiction anywhere will lead to um, a propagation of contradictions uh, throughout the entire structure, um, causing it pretty much to uh, decohere into contradiction, one, one giant contradiction. In this connection, I'm going to read something from Christopher Langan on his um, uh, uh, replies to uh, common uh, objections to the CTMU, which is his um, theory of ultimate reality. Uh, here he's replying to the claim that things don't have to be identical to their cognitive descriptions. Here's his reply. Suppose that there is some degree of non-correspondence between cognitive syntax and perceptual content, uh, in parentheses, observed phenomena. Then there exist items of perceptual content which do not correspond to or coincide with cognitive syntax. But if these items do not coincide with cognitive syntax, then they are unrecognizable, that is, inobservable, since cognitive syntax is by definition the basis of recognition. But then these items are not included in perceptual reality, the set of observ observable phenomena, and we have a contradiction. Therefore, perceptual reality must coincide with cognitive syntax. Okay, here's another argument he offers. Suppose that cognition is not the only model for self-organizing systems, i.e. that such systems can be essentially non-homomorphic to cognitive processing. If so, then they lack meaningful cognitive representations, defying characterization in terms of mental categories like space, time, and object. But then they fall outside reality itself, being indistinguishable as causes, effects, or any kind of phenomena whatsoever. In a word, they are irrelevant with respect to that part of reality isomorphic to human cognition. It follows, then, uh, that by any reasonable definition, reality is cognitive up to isomorphism with our own mental structures. Uh, in this connection, I'm going to quote Langan again. Explanation is identical to structure. In order to fully specify the structure of a system, one must explain why its aspects and components are related in certain ways, as opposed to other possible ways. If one cannot explain this, then one is unable to determine the truth values of certain higher-order relations, without which structure cannot be fully specified. On the other hand, if one claims that some of these higher-order structural components are quote-unquote absolutely inexplicable, then one is saying that they do not exist, and thus that the systemic structure is absolutely incomplete. Since this would destroy the system's identity, its stability, and its ability to function, it is belied that the systems it is belied by the system's very existence. Now, of course, uh, when pressed on these points, uh, a lot of uh, mystically minded people will say that what they're talking about can be experienced. It just can't be articulated in natural language, which already note that that's a hugely different claim that saying, than saying that these are inexperienceable or, or inarticulable uh, in principle. Uh, you know, when pressed on these points, m mystics will say, well, you can experience it, you know, in meditation. It just can't be verbalized. And what they mean by verbalized is 
in natural language as opposed to some more fine-grained language uh, of which there are many you know in including um uh, just the kind of neural uh information processing language of the human brain in which all your experiences occur so um you know that's that's what has to be realized is that one's inability to verbalize certain experiences that one has had when you know one was meditating for example does not constitute an indictment of logic as a whole one's inability to express in some natural language like english um a certain uh aspects of an experience one has had or which one otherwise believes to be possible does not represent an indictment of logic itself unless you're saying that the true nature of reality cannot be experienced at all in which case all you're really saying is that it doesn't exist you're saying that something real is not real. And again, if by exist or, or, or real, you mean something which is unperceivable or inexperienceable, then you're just using words without regard for their meaning. And you can't specify what you mean apart from their ordinary meaning. The ordinary meaning of exist is certainly, uh, you know, to be experienceable. Suppose I said that unicorns exist outside the imagination. They exist in the real world. But you can never perceive or otherwise experience them, even in principle. I'm simply contradicting myself. To exist is to be experienceable. And if you mean something other by this, uh, you know, if you mean something different than this, then you've got to specify what you mean. But you can't because the because there is no sense of the word exist other than the sense in which it is actually used. So anyway, all of this is to say that there are huge problems, um, fatal problems, implicit in supposing that um, reality itself is just a grand illusion and that the true reality is inexperienceable. And again, I, I really must emphasize that it doesn't do to say things like, um, it, it is experienceable and it is representable, just not to us. We're, we're like ants. Um, you know, if, if, if an ant uh, tried to understand human affairs, it could, you know, never, never approach anything like the human level of understanding of human affairs. To which um, all I can say is that if an ant were somehow smart enough to ask questions about human affairs, then it could understand answers at whatever level it was asking questions at. Again, if reality is intelligible at all, it's intelligible on every level. It's intelligible at every level of scale, which means that an ant can understand uh, aspects of reality at whatever level it is able to pose questions. Ditto for humans. You can't just say that there are some human questions uh, whose answer takes the form of an absolute contradiction. If you do this, then you're saying that reality is unintelligible and illogical in principle. You're not simply saying that, oh, it, there is an answer, but you're just not smart enough to understand it. You're actually saying that there can be no answer to any mind of any level of processing power. And that's surely not what you mean to say, because then you're talking about something 
real, but which, since it's contradictory, cannot exist. And if, again, by exist, you mean something other than, you know, be perceptually relevant, then, uh, you know, exist in consciousness, then please specify what you do mean. Um, but, you know, you won't be able to. Uh, like the Greek philosopher Cratylus, um, who said that the truth cannot be expressed at all, much like Parmenides, um, you know, you'll just be silently wagging your finger or saying some variant of, trust me, I experienced it, you know, in meditation, which implicitly gives the, gives the lie to everything that you say, because you're, you're now claiming implicitly that this supposedly illogical and inexperienceable experience that you've had, um, is, is one that is possible to experience, which means that it does obey logic. It means that it does figure in consciousness. Okay. Um, maybe, uh, that will be enough on this topic for the time being. So in view of the whole long diatribe that I just gave against, um, uh, supposing that, you know, existence can be something more or something other than, you know, conscious, perceptual, and logical, I, I thought it, it might be well to explain how people are led to this view. Um, and as far as I can tell, um, it comes from sort of naive reasoning about the infinite, which is, when you really analyze it, something uh, unlimited, uh, completely unlimited, like the Tao, you can't characterize it in terms of, uh, you know, some predicate or its complement. And, um, you know, you see this error, um, this sort of naive reasoning about the infinite and the unconditioned and the absolute reflected in a traditional uh, Christian theology, which talks about divine simplicity, um, which says that God has no parts. He's not a complex of properties. He's in effect just one property. And um, the disproof of this idea, or at least showing how it just leads to illogic, um, is pretty straightforward. I can summarize it as follows from my notes. Um, let's assume, one, that God is ultimate reality, and two, God is simple. Again, you don't even necessarily have to believe in a personal God. Just substitute the word ultimate reality for, for God. Um, if God is simple, he is one property. For this property to be intelligible, it needs a complement or backdrop against which it may be defined. But there is nothing beyond ultimate reality to fulfill this role. And in case one can't see why it's a problem for ultimate reality to be both itself and its complement without any distinction there between, as is ruled out by divine simplicity, um, I should point out that when something is both itself and its complement, it is both X and not X. It is, contra it is a contradiction or it is contradiction itself. And if God or ultimate reality, is, con is contradiction, uh, then, well, I mean, conventional theology just becomes impossible at that point. I mean, you can't say anything about it. Um, you know, you can't, you can't say that it's infinite, because then in the same sense, you can also say it's finite. You can't say that it's good or smart, because then in the same sense, you can also say it's bad and dumb. And, you know, you just, you just end up, well, you end up in the realm of, you know, endless self-contradiction and if you think that can pass for reality then you're denying the reality that you experience in front of you